You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. You're listening to another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. Today, I'm going to focus on a story of someone who was on the right trajectory with his career and through a series of circumstance and choice, found himself in a whole lot of trouble. And I'm going to let him describe the journey, both before and after. His name is Sean Hayes. Sean, welcome to the show. Doug, thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, so as uh, as is a little bit of a custom here, Sean, give us a little bit of the backstory first, kind of your career journey, your development as a professional, and, and then uh, we'll get into a little more of that critical life pivot that happened. No, I, 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 uh, I love telling the story, even the bad parts, because uh, I, uh, I enjoy these opportunities, and I think your, your uh, guests and your former guests have inspired me. I really enjoy your show. Um, well, I uh, I would pay, grew up in an entrepreneurial family, and uh, when I told them I was going to go into banking, they were angry because when you're a small business person, you don't like the IRS, you don't like the banker. And um, a, a very good family friend said, well, at least you'll learn how to borrow money. And that was about all the encouragement I had. And um, I started out in banking with a large bank um, based in Kansas City, Missouri, and um, I was the first generation of a sales culture. This was in 1982. And in uh, banking up till then was the 363 world. You paid 3% on deposits, you charge 6% on loans, and people teed off at golf courses at three in the afternoon. And the dumb son was the banker. The smart son was a lawyer, an investment banker, but the dumb child was the banker. And uh, I got into the business and it took me seven years, Doug, to figure out my last name wasn't Kemper. And uh, the company today is 111 years old. And guess what? One last name has been Kemper as CEO. But um, I figured that out at 29 and myself and another guy bought a bank. And um, there's a ton of fun stories with it. But just to tell you, we I used to drive 168 miles one way to work in the first bank I bought. Yeah. And um, then um, built it into the fifth largest bank of the state of Missouri. And we started out with about 16,000 banks in the country and we were 15,400 in size. And when I sold it 15 years later, 14 years later, we announced it, we were in the top hundred banks in size. We grew a bank and, and I bought that partner out um, three years into it. 80-fold in nine years, which isn't the banking business. Most banks in nine years would have grown, you know, they would have doubled. We doubled 80 times. It was just crazy, the stuff we did. And we made a lot of money. At 35, we went public. And at, at just for my 44th birthday, we sold it for about a half a billion dollars. And um, it was a fun ride. And I went for 25 years with incredible press and success and won E&Y Entrepreneur of the Years, the University of Missouri Business School Hall of Fame, one of the 12 greatest entrepreneurs in St. Louis from 88 to 08, things like that. And uh, and then I made a mistake, but we'll get to that in a minute. And, and I made a poor choice. One story I have to tell your, your listeners, and it's my favorite story, 
we buy this bank and we close in October. We've been running it since May. And Doug had had a million one hundred thousand dollars in cash in it. Now, fast forward nine years later, when I had you know thirty some offices, you might have fifty thousand in cash and seventy five in an ATM. So we sat around and Fed funds were like almost nine percent. And we said, you know, if we took like $750,000 of this, we'll make an extra 5000 something a month. Not that we were rocket scientists, but we saw a chance to do that. And so I called Brinks and Brinks wanted $250 and they wanted to come like next Thursday. So the real cost was going to be about $1,500 or something. And I said, let's load it in the trunk of my car. And I'm probably the only human, you know, I, you're already laughing. <laughs> I put three quarters of a million dollars in a in the trunk of a car. Now, in the movie, a million dollars is a thin briefcase. Well, this was bags and bags of fives, tens, twenties. The car was like this. And I and in October, in late October, it's dark in the Midwest. And um, I drove 168 miles on a dark road, most of it two lane, with no insurance, no nothing. And got to my house. Now, this is where I, by the way, until I wrote the book, I hadn't told this story to 10 people. And probably half of them were employees at the bank who watched us do it. I got home and my cousin said, Sean, why didn't you pull your car in the garage and sleep in it? And Doug, that would have been the right thing to do. But instead, we unloaded the three quarters of a million dollars and put it in the house. <laughs> yeah. And then we, everybody sleeps by the money. <clears throat> if God forbid it catches on fire. And the next morning, I get up at four something, load it back in the car. And at five something in the morning, down at the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank, there's a whole line of Brinks trucks and one red, red 1989 Buick. So that should tell you a lot about the culture we had. And, and you talk in your show, you talk about cultures. And I believe the CEO of a company is the chief culture carrier. And we had a culture of, we uh, there were 400 banks in our peer group every year. And we were always in the top 5% in yield. We we knew how to price and we gave high service, but uh, but we were a little crazy and we had a ton of fun. I used to carry a typewriter in my trunk. I know your listeners don't know what a typewriter is. They see them in antique stores, but I literally would carry it there. And if you and I met in your office and you needed money, I had notes and we'd type up documents and we'd do business because I didn't have an office in St. Louis. I was almost in Iowa. And um, so that was a great run and it was a great success. And um, I'll back up now and start on, on on where it starts to go awry. If if you, one, I'll back up and say, I don't think that maybe 5% of the population is really criminal or maybe it's 10%. It's not a big percentage, but a whole lot of us make choices every day. In the, the first month I was at UMB as a trainee, they had all my class, 20-some people in for it with a, a consultant, and we took a test. And um, the good news is they, they started hiring people based on my profile. The bad news is I got in an argument on the first question with the proctor, and it was, have you stole anything from this company? And I answered no. And I was in the front row, and he looked down at my answer, and he stopped the test and said, excuse me. I know you all have answered question one. You have to answer it yes. Well, I was offended, so I began arguing. 
And what he said was true, but Doug, I didn't understand at the time. He said, you will walk out of here with a pen, a pad of paper, some envelopes. You will steal something. And he was right. And that's how my story begins. And so you go back to day one, or really in that case, maybe day 30. And most of the people who commit crimes, and I put myself in there, and when I did it, I committed a crime. I was guilty of it. I, I you know, I knew exactly what I was doing. I'll tell you how I justified it in a little bit. But the point is, you don't just wake up and say, I'm going to rob something. I'm going to do something. You get there over time. And so with that in mind, um, if you leave L.A., headed for D.C. in a jet, and you're off one degree, given time, speed, and distance, you end up in New York City. And that's why I called the book The Great Choice. I made a ton of money for myself and my shareholders by pushing the envelope, never doing anything illegal, but getting as far in the gray as you could. And I had the best lawyers in the state of Missouri, and I would go down there many times a year and say, we want to do this. Don't tell me how, why, what I can't do. Tell me how I can do what I want to do. And if it's worth the aggravation, we'll do it. And so that was a culture we had. And um, so I always pushed and pushed and pushed. In fact, one of the chapters of the book is pushing, pushing, and pushing. But let um, me uh, let me jump in on that point. And uh, first, let me say, being an old banker myself, and and part of a very high flying, high performing bank as well. Um, many of my listeners have heard me tell this story. You know, the bank I was with was a large regional, and we ran off sixty four consecutive quarters of earnings growth. And, you know, 16 years through the economic ebb and flow of, of business, uh, that's a pretty big deal to have that kind of a track record. So we were, a, you know, we were a well-run bank. And your, your statement about talking to the attorneys, I will never forget one of my first meetings with our primary attorneys. The, the attorney that I was talking to was actually kind of leading the discussion. And he said, look, guys, he said, I'm not here to tell you what you can and can't do. I want I want to hear what you want to do. And I will tell you what the legal risks might be and how we can properly structure to mitigate as many of those as possible. But as with anything business, there's always going to be a risk of some kind and and nothing is perfect. There is some gray and, you know, it might be impacted by case law or not. And who wants to be the first guy to create the case law over a subject matter? But nonetheless, uh, having that partnership with those attorneys, I think, was a was an insightful opportunity for me. And. So, um, uh, so I'm sorry I interrupted with no, your no, next, I love that. next chapter there. No, you're great. And, and what you said, and I completely agree. And we had double digit earning growth every year. We, every quarter over quarter, we were public. So Wall Street loved us. And um, so I can relate to the culture you were part of. And uh, I can relate to that. As I say, you know, gray is, you know, the world is not 50% black and 50% white. It's really a little white and a little a little black, and it's a, a lot of gray. And uh, as long as you don't cross into the black, you're okay. And um, and and but when you're out there always pushing, you get close. And we and, and and you were with institutions. I'm sure I could say the same thing. 
we never even had a memorandum of understanding. We were we had a great regulatory track record. As I tell people in those days, they rated banks two to five, and we were always a two because a three meant the government was telling you how to run your business, not that they didn't try anyway, and a one meant you had too much capital. And so we tried to have just enough capital to not have a problem and comply with the rules so we didn't have a problem, but we tried to maximize shareholder value. And it sounds like you were the institution very similar. Right. And um, and the other thing is those days in banking are gone. That's a whole other story. Right. I, I well, look that, at it. And I'm not ashamed to admit that's why I got out of it. I saw the changes coming. And after 20 plus years in there myself, it, it wasn't the banking game that I knew and loved. And it, it was it was radically changing. And I didn't want to do it anymore. No, and I got out before I had criminal problems. I got out for the same reason. After 29 years, I actually gave a talk about 12 years ago and I said, what I know is banking is forever gone and will be replaced by hedge funds. And I'm almost right. You know, every day I get more and more um, closer to being completely closer to right. <laughs> yeah, to it, right. it's going to happen because in the government, I understand the government, they want to regulate risk out. But your audience are risk takers. And, um, you know, there, there is and when you're out in the real world, you, you have to assess risk and um and the government wants you to be in a no-risk business. It's hard to play. So I want to talk talk a little bit more about this gray area theme because I, I, I love where I think we're going on this. I, I talk to a lot of my clients about that as well. And I have, uh, in some of my higher-end Fortune 500 executive coaching, I run into people that are making the climb up the corporate ladder. And the, the young ones tend to gravitate to the black and white. They, they want to know the black and white answer because they're afraid of doing something wrong and they want clarity and they want crystal clear instruction. But any of us who've been around the block a few more times know that that's not the way the world works. It, it's, it's just not a reality. And there is a whole lot of gray. And I think for business owners, what the thought that comes to my mind, if you're an entrepreneur out there, I, I, I think there's an element of needing to get out of the gray just temporarily, figure out where your guide rails are for the, the bounds that you may want to operate within and then get back to the game of, of making your business operate. But I think it's important to know something about where those black and white guide rails might be. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs that don't do the first thing about figuring that out. So they have a, a, a genuine sense of where they're going and what kind of swim lane they might be in. I think you're right. I think it's really the entrepreneur who's out there, especially in what I call the tech world, and I don't mean software development, but just anything where you don't have people around you, really get off the rails in a hurry lots of times. And, and not just, and not criminal problem like I had, but with tax problems and things, because they're not exposed. You and I were very fortunate in our careers, I can tell. We were around people who had great experience in business. Right. And when you're an entrepreneur and you're, especially in today's world where it's solopreneurs or word and things like that, you don't have that. And you've grown up in a culture where you didn't have people around you. You haven't learned all those things by osmosis. I was with a young man today who sold two businesses for seven, seven figures. And he's never, he doesn't have a bank account. It's all with 
Fidelity and Mercury and all these internet banks. And he needed a cashier's check and he didn't understand why he couldn't get one. And, you know, <laughs> it's just little things like that, that you and I take for granted. Then it gets to bigger things and, and, and his business problems are not running a good business. It said he doesn't understand taxes and he doesn't understand expenses and things like that. And that's a segue into why I was so successful. And you'll appreciate this. And I think the banking model, as we grew up in it, is a good model for small businesses, especially entrepreneurs to have. And that's one to have a, a, a board of directors and to have one where you do monthly reporting as much as it hurts you. So that, you know, it's like we had a consultant come in when dashboards were big 25 or eight years ago. And they said, you know, you get all the data in the world, but just come up with the six or eight things that are important to you. And once we started managing by daily and weekly dashboards, our earnings went up even more. But it's all that information's there. But when you get in the heat of the business, you you don't do that. And that's where I thought banking was good. But I tell people I was so successful because I had three men and one woman on my executive committee. And I'm very proud of the fact, I'll go back, that we bought our second bank, which was an $11 million institution, which which you know is a rounding error in the world of banking. I put an African-American and a woman on the board day one, and people thought I was crazy in 1990. But it was, again, diversity of your community, understanding the people that were there. But these four people helped me accountable at least once a week for almost 15 years. And they were not bankers, Doug. And so if they ever ask me why we did something, and I said, because we always did it they, that way, it usually meant we were changing it. And that was a good thing. That's a good thing in culture. And so when I talk to small, to small business entrepreneurs, I go, surround yourself with three or four people. And I hate to say not your spouse, your significant other, your partner, but people who hold you accountable. And if you don't have money to give them, figure out a way to give them something of value because you need people who don't think like you around you. And when I had those people around me, we flew to heights that I never dreamed of. And then I sold, and this was one, we sold to the seventh largest bank in the country. And I became one of the top 35 people of 36,000. And the other thing that happened was I was 29 and the people who really taught me were 30 to 40 years older. Well, by now they were older, dying. As I said, virtually everybody knows older, dead now. And I lost that group. And I spent four years. I also lost, and I think this is a key thing in any entrepreneur's world. I was a guerrilla warfare here. I, I knew we never made a loan for the first probably 10 years. I didn't go look at the building myself. I didn't meet the business owner. It was the last five or six years when we were several billion dollar bank that I didn't have time. But I knew who my people were that we were born from. I tried to understand them. I tried to meet them. And that connectivity was important. Well, when you're in a big company, you have no connectivity. I lost that. And during that four-year period, I continued to invest in real estate and bank stocks, which is how I'd made my money. And then in 2008, when the world ended, what became worthless were bank stocks and, um, and real estate. And um, so as I was losing millions of dollars a month in early 08, I, um, I went back and I bought into, I caught a falling knife and I bought into some small local banks thinking that, well, together they would have been a billion dollars, thinking I could put them together and create scale. And um, I did the wrong thing at the wrong time with the wrong plan. 
And uh, about a year into it, I was bleeding so profusely. And I believe decisions are made by fear and greed. And I made a decision that was based on fear and greed, you know, and, and the fear was I was going to fail. And the greed was it was a transaction that I'd seen I'd been part of for a decade or more where we bought um, discounted assets from larger banks and structured the transaction, structured to where the borrowers had income that had nothing to do with the assets, really went through it well. There was only one one problem. We get down to the 11th hour, and one of the banks that we were buying these assets from had a loan that I was a partner in that was performing. And the guy who was the problem, who I'd done business with at that time for 20 years, we were buying his debt. They said he was in that deal, and they didn't want a loan on You're familiar with this. We don't want a loan with that guy's name on our books, period, even if it's performing. And... I knew the minute I agreed with this, I'd broken the law. And what I did was, because I own 54% of the bank, you know this, number one, you can't do business with yourself anyway. But when you own more than 10%, you can't. But at 54, there was no way. So I knew I couldn't go to the board and say, we need to buy this loan to get this part of the deal done because we bought a ton of debt from a lot of banks. And um, so I made the choice of not saying anything. And right then I committed a crime, a federal crime, and I knew it. And I justified it, Doug, because as I tell people, and you can relate to this, when you rob a 7-Eleven, they call the police and they're there in minutes. When you, you know, when you, when you commit a crime like I committed, it was literally seven years before I was indicted. So I had to sleep for seven years and I did it because I wasn't stealing any money. So I could, you know, I could sleep at night and say I didn't steal anything. Where the deal went awry was the guy who um, um, was the was to work through this, but had but had no equity interest in it, but had a financial gain built into it if he did it. And I'd watched him do it dozens and dozens of times before. I didn't realize how deep his problems were financially, and he eventually committed suicide, and then the deal just collapsed. And a doctor and a successful car dealer and a very successful real estate guy were left holding the bag. But I was now in that mess. And uh, when I when I pled guilty, um, they uh, they had a room full of um, forensic accountants. I had to explain my crime to them. Now, the charge is bank fraud, misappropriation of bank funds. And and people would say, well, you got money. Well, I didn't get money. But. As you know, when you go through the accounting, that's 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 the legal term. But um, I, I did it, and I was wrong when I did it. And I, I tell people, you get out there, and you get to the point where I was, and then all of a sudden you can justify something. And had I been, you know, even five years before and had those four people around me, I would have never even thought of doing it. But I didn't have that law firm. I didn't have those people. And I was off the rails. And, and and you said it a while ago when you're talking about the entrepreneurial people you deal with. When you don't have those people around them, you can get in. You know, it doesn't have to be criminal trouble. You can get financial trouble. You can get in tax trouble. You can get in IP trouble. And you have to have people around you. Right. Right. 
Well, just to take it down to a real micro scale, I can't tell you how many times people have um, gotten themselves in trouble by the, by being really squeezed for cash and they want to make payroll, so they pay their people the net sum of their paycheck. But then the portion that's held out as the employer part of the tax is real cash. And instead of remitting that to the state or the government where you're obligated, you you use that to pay some more bills. And then you think, well, I'll make it up in the long run. And you get off schedule because those are taxes that are due on very specific schedules. And it, once you get off schedule, you, you've you've committed a crime there. You're right. And then not only correct, I was in prison with a lot of men who were in for 941s. That's exactly it. Yeah. That when the economy went against them in 08. It's the same thing. They didn't, it didn't come out day one and they could never make that money up to the IRS. That's and, right. Uh, yeah. No, you, 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 that's a great example. But again, when you're out there on that island and you don't have that familiarity and you're looking at cash, um, you, you can make those kind of decisions. And I won't say you don't know you're doing something wrong, but you may not know the degree of what you're doing is wrong. Right, right. And well, if you do some simple math, if, if you have a $100,000 payroll and your employer obligation is 7%, well, that's 7000 bucks, <clears throat> And that might be your rent check on your facility. Right. So that's... Uh, you know that's a that's an easy math to get sucked into, but that seven thousand needs to have a giant red ring fence around it, and uh, you, you got to eat it up. You got to if 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 rent due is your problem, well, that's a separate problem. Go talk to your landlord. You know, don't 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 pay Peter to and Rob Paul doing it. No, no, that's that's exactly right. And and you're dealing with the government. And, uh, and they are unforgiving, as they should be, because that's Social Security's uh, payments are a big thing to them. But, um, you know, I, I think what I continually tell people is, and, and, and I did, and the book has freed me. That was a question I got asked one time. And I didn't I didn't write it for that reason. I wrote, you don't mean, and you know this, you don't make money on a book. I wrote it for the sheer fact that if one person makes a better choice than they would have, then I accomplish what I want to do because as much as I debated all this, it cost me my freedom, my family. I have various family children that are angry at me. I got divorced over it. It cost me tons of friends and it cost me, you know, my fortune. And that's, you know, the consequence, you know, the consequences were huge. And, um, and I just don't want anyone to go down that path when they can get, you know, people in, in your business and in others to lead them away from it. And, you know, it's very hard when you're in business to want to spend money, but you really have to spend money on people who are going to help you. Right. And that If you don't, you're not going to get there. And I will tell you, and I'll use this term, it's not my favorite term, consultant. I never hired a consultant that I didn't get a mini fold return, but it took me a lot of years to get comfortable with doing that. And whatever term or, you know, moniker you put on that, that name, there's a whole lot of people that know a lot more about things than you do. And that's probably the best money you can spend. And, um, and that's another thing I tell people every day. Well, 
You know, I several things come to my mind. First, I, I, I'm reflecting on my own banking career. I, I've told this story to friends and others. I'm not sure I've mentioned it on the show here, but I can remember as a young banker, I used to sit with colleagues at lunch, and we would we would visualize what kind of crime you could per- perpetuate against the bank. We, we would try to think about for everything we knew about controls and availability of funds and systems and procedures, how would you affect the perfect bank crime? And I don't know what it says about my group and our DNA, but we never could think we never could figure one out. <laughs> we, we, we always had somebody always had a roadblock, you know, Oh, but you forgot about this or you forgot about that, or, you know, that you're, you're going to get caught there. But then later, that thinking evolved into the question of if, if you're going to perpetrate a crime intentionally, how much is enough? Right. You know, how much do you want to risk? Is, is there a number of what you want your crime value to be that is going to justify the risk? And, and that became a little bit of a mantra that spread around among a lot of my banker friends. And then one day, there was an executive of another bank. We were banking the bank, if that makes sense. And yeah. this guy called me and, and I was a specialist in his line of business. And he called me and his first words were, one of my customers just declared how much is enough. <laughs> what do you mean? And he said he ran off with $16.5 million. Yeah. He well, just... And- you know, he had built his his transactional balance up to the point there was sixteen point five million cash in the pipe, and he took it and he, he was found in the Cayman Islands. He was trying to siphon it off and hide it over there, but he got caught. And uh, I mean, it was seventy two hours. He was in custody, and you know, it it all imploded. Well, and and, and you're right, and and see, that was how in my mind I could because I never did it quite as, as openly, but we tried to figure out how people would take money from us. And uh, um, the only guy that I know who got away with it, and I didn't see, I wasn't, I just thought it would solve itself and I wouldn't get money so I could get around it, which even gave me, you know, a sense of comfort. Obviously I shouldn't have had, but I do know one guy here that got away and he spoke seven languages and he's been in Africa for 27 years. Now I don't want to live in Africa. But he got a lot of money, and nobody knows how much. But they still haven't got him, and they haven't stopped looking. But I, that's the thing is they're going to find you, and there right. isn't enough money. And that's why you just can't get out there in that gray to the point to where you do something like that. And, um, and, and, and I just implore people, find people you trust that will hold you accountable. The best businesses I've seen you were in banking was where the – sales guy had an accounting guy or the engineering guy had a salesperson and they counterbalanced each other and partnerships are hard i think they're one of the hardest things it's like a marriage it's a very hard thing you have to work at it every day but you can't surround yourself with yes people and uh, and one thing that the woman did in the group she was probably the best hr mind i was ever around in my life and she interviewed any senior person we hired and then they would come to me and she would go, Sean, you're going to love Doug for all these reasons. But there's two things you won't be able to stand. 
but he's going to far outweigh everything. And you, meaning me, have to get over those two things because lepers don't change their spots and tigers don't change their stripes. But this man is going to really excel. And see, the two things I didn't like were where you were totally opposite of me, but then that made us a better team. And that kind of knowledge around you, you know, when I tell people and they start a business and they're not, I say, you know, get, get an HR person around you. Obviously you need a good attorney. You need a good accountant that understands tax because in, in an optional business, it's all about tax. Get somebody who knows your industry and those kind of, I talk about five or six things, depends on maybe IT is important to you, maybe insurance if you got the right, if you have risk management issues, but surround yourself with those people who are going to call you to the carpet because left to our own devices, and I, I'm guilty of this, obviously, criminally, we can make some pretty poor choices. Well, you're right. And uh, a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. One is that idea of the circle of trusted colleagues and advisors that, that will shoot straight, tell the honest truth. And there are definitely individuals, both entrepreneurial and corporate, who kind of the 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 success fuels their ego and pretty soon they start to think they're invincible about the way they look and run at their business and no one is and and that's that's probably the first warning sign if if that thought creeps across your your brain screen that you you know somehow you you've got the Midas touch and everything you you do turns to gold. It, well, you know, that ought to be a red flag right there. And, and if you don't have this circle of colleagues and advisors that can call you on the carpet and challenge the thinking, and that's not to say your idea won't prevail in the end, but it will be vetted and screened and massaged for its true merit and not just the wild, crazy idea you might've come up with. Well, I, do, I have to say, you just described me to a T of what happened to me, but see, because somebody asked me this question, because a lot of, and I, it's amazing to me how many people didn't abandon me as friends, but I never was, you know, I never was egomaniac with the Ferrari and the plane. And, you know, I was the same. I just kept reinvesting in businesses but I thought I was invincible. And I always said, I, after I, after this all imploded, I said, I was never as smart as they thought I was, but I'm not as dumb as they think I am. <laughs> but, yeah. but I had to fall flat on my face to figure that out. And, um, and you're right. Anytime you think you're invincible, you're headed for a fall. And, uh, and you described me, but it wasn't the outward thing. If you knew me as a, as a business associate, I was no different at 29 than I was at 49. And, and I mean, that just was it. And today, you know, I, I'm, as I say, I'm a shadow of my former self, but I'm still just as intense and driven. But I have learned those lessons that I try to pass on, as you just described. But uh, it's, um, it, it's, your, it's in your own shoes that you have to be comfortable. And, um, and in business, you don't want to be comfortable. You want to be uncomfortable. Well, let me ask you this. In in your transaction that got you in trouble, were there any, I'll call them culpable pawns that were involved as well? There was one, the, the lender who was running the transaction. I told him when we bought, I said, we're going to have to take this, this loan and just put it in the pool with the rest of them. 
and he knew it was wrong. And he didn't, you know, didn't say a word or anything. And I think a lot of that back to decisions made by fear. His fear was, you know, not that I would fire him, but that the world was ending and he might end up unemployed. Again, not looking at the consequences, the long-term consequences. And um, see, that wouldn't have happened in my prior life because one, I was so big, nothing I did ever got near the bank. And two, even before it got that big, I, I felt so comfortable with those four individuals that we talked about everything. And um, and quite honestly, and you were in banking, I could, you know, I, I, I say this seriously, but there's probably a hundred business people in St. Louis that people know well that did business with us that easily could have ended up in prison. But we made the choice of, rather than filing a suspicious activity report, let's get as much money as we can back. Yeah. Because we know they, you know, and this is, if, if you know this, if somebody's a developer, it's very hard for, if we weren't a big developer bank, but if they're in a development, it's very hard for them not committed bank fraud, technically, and I don't even say maliciously. But we would get in situations and we would say, and since, uh, you know, five cents of every dollar was my own, and we were a big bank, I wanted my money back. So I would much rather write and work and and deal with those people. And then I made the business decision to never do business with them again. That was their punishment. But if I turn them over to the FBI, they would end up in jail and I would have lost 80 cents instead of maybe not losing anything or losing 20. Right, right. It, and that's a well, tough thing. This idea of the culpable pawn, uh, in, in a lot of my exposure to various forms of bank fraud and nefarious acts of greed and fear, uh, and and by the way, I, I saw most of my uh, situations after I left mainstream banking, I did some consulting work with the FDIC, so I was one of those mop-up guys after a bank fail and we would move in, sweep in and review all the files and try to liquidate the assets that were left over. And in all cases, there was some form of bank fraud that had been perpetrated in causing the fail of the bank. And when you start unraveling the hairy ball of twine that the perpetrator might have created, you realize there are people along the way that either did not have the knowledge they needed to know what they were signing if, if they needed a, a document signed to set something up. Um, the infamous fail of Colonial Bank over in Birmingham was because of some mortgage fraud by the company Taylor Bean Whitaker. And part of that structure that worked, the guy that was chairman of Taylor Bean, and he's now in, in a lifelong federal sentence, he'll never get out of jail. He'll, he'll die in prison over it. It was $3.5 billion of fraud. Um, he had appointed his secretary to be his corporate secretary for signing really high-level legal documents. She had no clue what she was signing, no clue. He would just wave it under her nose and say, sign this for me. And of course, the feds came after her too, and she plea dealed to, you know, minimize her 
risk. She still served some time, but it was nothing. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe it was eight months or 12 months or something like that. But um, it, it's that idea that there are, I ended up calling them culpable pawns that get sucked into the force of the person that's really driving the train. No, you're, that's, that's a good term. And, and we do, you do see an awful lot of that. And, and you and I know it from banking where it's highly regulated are more regulated than any other industry around. It's not highly as people think it is, but um, but it happens in business. You know, I remember that over my 30-some year banking career, going in and out of companies in this one, and now they call them a CFO. Back then they called them, you know, a treasurer or a finance officer. And this guy stole money at every company. If I called on you and I saw he was there, then if, you know, you did a few months later, he might be gone. You say, well, you know, we were missing a hundred thousand. And, you know, it just never, it never was in banking, he would have been in prison. But in small business, people look the other way out of embarrassment, out of all kinds of things. And, uh, and you can't do that on your own, even in a small business. And that goes back to controls. I, you know, I, 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 I've read about what you do. I don't know how, how much you get into the weeds, as we say. But, you know, I watched a, a, a law firm here that was a collection firm that collected millions of dollars a month for clients. And they didn't have dual controls, and they woke up one day missing seven figures for one employee. And you know, I tell people in, in these little companies, you've got to have even if you only have two people, then that one person can't be doing everything. One of them has to do one and one the other. And you and I came from a culture where that was prevalent, and people just don't realize that, and then they right. wake up missing money. Right. Yeah, I have a bias that way. When I get engaged to go help a, a small business owner, the the whole banking control, dual control idea is way up at the top of my list of considerations. And I my argument is cash is king in a small business. If you lose control of your cash position, I don't care how fancy your uh, the rest of your financial statements look, you got trouble. <laughs> and and if if you are in a a large cash operation it's going to be darn tempting for your employees to pocket some of that along the way skim off the top or whatever i did some work with a car dealer a number of years ago he was one of these classic tote the note car lots and uh but it was a you know it was a eight figure business but 90% of their transactions were cash. Yeah. Because these, you know, borrowers on these car notes came in and made weekly payments in cash. So there was a cash window and a cash handling process. And I mean, it had bulletproof glass on the window and all that good stuff. But the people behind the window were the ones that were his highest risk. Well, you're right about that. I was in prison with a guy who was with a company that didn't do 10 million a year. And he was there 30 years and he sold a million, he sold a hundred thousand a year on average for 30 years. And you'd sit there and think, how can a company doing four, five, six, seven million miss a hundred thousand and not catch a hundred thousand in cash? And it's just for what not having dual controls. And he kept it going until he went on, until they, he went on vacation one time and somebody looked. Yep. Back to the old banking thing of you have to take two consecutive weeks of vacation. Just those little things. And, and, and you said this earlier, we talked about your, your companies you do business with that are large. We spent a ton of time 
in the Allegiant days decide what was the gift level was de minimis. In the beginning, it was $100. <clears throat> and by the time we sold, it was $250. Now then, if I sit in that same seat, and anytime anybody, somebody asks me, it's zero. Because it's the beginning of that gray. And what whatever that number is, it clouds that person's judgment. I wouldn't even let my people take tickets to concerts or baseball games now if I were in that business, any kind of business that I had that, because you 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 think an extra second or two rather than making that quick no, well, maybe. And then all of a sudden you wake up in a bad position. Oh, yeah. Well, that reminds me of a situation I was in a number of years ago. I was invited to a, a barbecue party that a guy was throwing. He was an HVAC contractor, but he his reputation was he was one of these guys that would travel the country. Wherever there was a disaster, he would mobilize his guys and they would go, you know, fix everybody's heating and air to recover from the disaster. Well, this party, he was inviting all of his insurance adjuster friends Yep. And when I pulled up to his property out in the country, there were fishing boats, brand new fishing boats on trailers. There were Jeeps with hunting racks on top. You go inside, there were tables full of deer rifles and shotguns, brand new, all of it brand new. And he was giving that stuff away at the party. He was having mm -hmm. a drawing and raffle. So all these adjusters were... And by the time the day was over, all that inventory was gone. Everybody won something. Everybody won something. And you and you know the drawing was rigged. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought, oh, my God. And I was still a banker at the time. And, and when I walked there, I, I seriously thought about, I need to leave. I, I need to just turn around and walk off. But it was an extended family relation that was strained at best. But I thought, I'm, I'm going to make good. I'm going to try to, you know, from a pure family standpoint, I was going to try to make this. But when I got done, I said, no, I'm never doing that again. That I don't want to have anything. And I didn't get I didn't win anything, by the way, because so, I wasn't an adjuster. But um, right. But that in that clouds are, as you know, and, and you're talking bigger, but it's all those little things and that's why I say over time, you just get you more and more clouded. And we've all seen it where you, you know, in banking in particular, where somebody looks the other way on a borrowing base or something. And then all of a sudden you end up with a problem and, right. and, and it's just, it's not good. And I know employees don't like to hear that, but I would rather pay my people more and say, we have a zero tolerance for anything from our clients than wake up with a problem. Right. And, and, and unfortunately, we're human beings, and uh, and we make those kind of errors in judgment more frequently than we want to med. Right. Well, Sean, this has been phenomenal. I, I know I've certainly enjoyed it. I hope our audience will. But uh, say again the name of the books and the best way people can get a hold of those if they're interested. It, it's The Great Choice, and, and, and Amazon is the best way. And uh, I like to joke and say, my website is Sean, spelled the right way, S-H-A-U-N-H-A-Y-S.com, because no one spells it that name hardly, and uh, I, I get a good laugh, because when I was in college in my fraternity, there were three Seans, and we all three spelled it differently. But um, but I really enjoyed your show, Doug, 
And I know your audience will get benefit from somebody like you. What I tell this to my own children, because three of the five have degrees in finance, there's nothing like a few years at a commercial bank to have a good understanding of the world. And I, and I know anybody who retains you will get benefit beyond belief because you have that general knowledge of just common sense that they don't teach you in any school. So um, I, uh, I've appreciated getting to know you and I've become a fan of yours. I've watched quite a few of your episodes and, and thanks for having me on. Well, I really appreciate it, Sean. Thank you so much. And as always, folks, we're going to have contact info and links in our show notes so you can hop over and grab Sean's books and visit his website. But with that, we're going to sign off, say goodbye. I really want to thank you for hanging in there. This one's been a little longer than than most of my episodes, but I, I think there's a lot of value here to consider, especially if you're owning and running that business and you might be slipping into the gray maybe hit the replay button and go back over a couple of the key points here that Sean shared with us. And with that, I'm going to say goodbye and have a great day. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.